I guess we're back to the old style intro. You huh? know what? Don't look too much into it. It was it's reflexive. I just jumped right into the, you know, the comfort uh the yeah, comfort zone, Muscle memory, huh? Yeah, muscle memory. Mm. Dave, back when you and I met, it was a summer of nineteen ninety-eight. We were kids. We were babies. Mm-hmm. We were barely legal. But, yeah. Um like like many teenagers in that era, we sort of defaulted, if you remember, to our own local college scene. And we kind of built what would become our most lasting friendships, including our friendship, mm-hmm. uh, and our most important relationships, out of you know, out of that scene, that like UNLV scene, and we were really lucky in that time. UNLV is not really, honestly, it's not much of a campus life kind of school. But in that moment, there were these sockets for us to plug into. This podcast, unlike most podcasts, you can actually trace this podcast's origin to a real moment in real space. And uh, Bird Road is an outgrowth. We've talked about this before of this organic arts culture that was in Las Vegas and centralized around the university district. We found some success doing our shows at these assorted local venues throughout the campus's closest arterial. And you and and me, we've been doing this show in some form for more than 20 years, whether it's like dressed up as frogs on stage at, Mm -hmm. you know, Tom and Jerry's or whether it was, you know, stealing uh, copier privileges from the UNLV library. Like Mm -hmm. we've been doing this thing for like, more than 20 years. Before 9-11, Dave, yeah. you've been doing this. If it was you and me doing something, it's Bird Road, basically. But even back then, we were standing on the shoulders of a bygone era. Uh, it was a cultural brew that had sort of been cooking for more than a decade. And there was this residual sort of leftover vibe from this micro-generation that had immediately preceded us. There was a sense, and I had this, I don't know about you, but it felt like we had arrived to see like the last few ounces of, of that brew slide down the drain. And... Um, we talk about how Las Vegas in the nineties and two thousands was this very special time, a very special place. It made us who it's, who we are. It's our origin story and the local music scene, local comedy scene, the club scene, the hip hop scene, uh, the drinking and assorted other things scene. Uh, they helped form this podcast that everybody is listening to right now. And it all centered around one street, this mixed use thoroughfare that abuts the UNLV campus on the east side of town called Maryland Parkway. Our guest today is PJ Perez, who is a director of the new documentary, Parkway of Broken Dreams, a retrospective uh, that explores that era and features loads of contemporaneous footage from very important places for those of us who came up in that scene. And it tells a familiar tale. It's it's a story that a lot of like sort of mid-major metropolitan cities have had about this like uh, this specific time and place and the people who existed in it and seemed like they were really building something and and exactly how it got away from them. Um, it's like what happens to the bottle after the lightning in the bottle escapes, right? And you can find more information about the film. It's not out yet in wide release, but you can find it, find more info and stay up to date on it at parkwayofbrokendreams.com. Uh, PJ, welcome to Bird Road. Thanks so much for having me, guys. I, I, it's it's interesting to hear to hear that this podcast basically came out of a relationship that was formed yeah. On that street, you know, 20 plus years ago. That's really, that's really interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah. I have to say that, uh, if Q hadn't moved to Miami, the, the show would probably be called Maryland Parkway. Yeah. I would imagine. True. Or Harmon or something. I don't know. But. Yeah, that's true. No, for sure. It absolutely would have. Yeah. Um, 
Dave, it's funny because right before we get to, to like the first question for PJ, I just want to like throw this out at you. I watched the movie. I really enjoyed it. Um, and eventually when, when, when it's wide released and, and available to, for people to see, I, I, we strongly recommend that you see it. But and Dave, I know you saw it too. Mm-hmm. I had this weird feeling, Dave, that's like not nostalgia. And I don't know what the word is that you call it when you have nostalgia for a thing that you weren't around for. Right. Like, you, like, like I say, we moved there in 98. A lot of the core of, of, of PJ's movie is is really like through the late 80s up through like right then. And then sort of 98 is like the beginning of the end. What, did you did you get that vibe too, Dave, when watching watching uh, Parkway of, uh, of, of Broken Dreams? Or like how, how did it hit you? Yeah, 100%. I, I completely agree with that because, yeah, it, it, it was total, total nostalgia for something that I actually wasn't really a part of aside from, you know, just a few times maybe at that very tail end. I, you know, hung out maybe at a couple of the places that, that were there or that maybe were the places that the places shown in the film eventually became or were bought out and, and changed to. So, yeah, it, it's a really weird feeling to have nostalgia for something that you weren't really there for. PJ, maybe you can start off by telling us a little bit about yourself and kind of like what drew you to the subject of this like 90s micro renaissance of culture that happened on Maryland Parkway in Vegas. Like, how did you come to this um, project? I mean, I was there first off. So, you know, it's funny because it sounds like I I have a lot of friends who are maybe about, it's just about like five years younger than me, who Mm. they kind of found that Maryland Parkway scene sort of around the time you guys are talking about, right? Like the late yeah. 90s when it was still happening, but those of us who had been around in the earlier part of the decade saw that a lot of stuff was going away. And really it was like from 98 to 2003 is when everything just sort of like dissipated. Um, so I was there as a teenager, you know, I found Maryland Parkway through Actually, I think it was through the Rocky Horror Picture Show. So I worked at the Torrey Pines Discount Cinema on um, Sahara and Torrey Pines nice. in Las Vegas back in high school. So I think I started working there in like 92 or something like that. And uh, we did the Rocky Horror Picture Show every Friday, Saturday night. And I was re- managing the theater, but I also was performing in the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Who did um, you play? I played Frankenfurter. Okay. Nice. So, yeah. Uh, Media role. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I don't know how that happened, but but you know, the the kind of people that are attracted to the Rocky Horror Picture Show tend to be a bunch of freaks and weirdos. And I was like, "Oh, I found my people." You know? Um and those people when they weren't hanging out there or at the Denny's afterward, were hanging out on Maryland Parkway. Because that's where the coffee shops were. That's where the record stores were. That's where, like, you know, we couldn't go to bars yet, but, like, bands were playing at record stores and coffee shops. So, you know, that's where we would shop, you know. It's like, and I lived out in the suburbs. I lived out in the lakes. And, you know, for me, it was, like, opening my eyes to a whole new world, right? Um, And I wasn't going to college at the time. You know, I was a kid. Um, So I came out of that scene. um, And... Uh, the the film really was spawned by an article that because you know my I, my background is I was a journalist in Vegas for years. Uh, my my first published article when I was 16 years old in Scope magazine, um, and I had actually written a cover story that was an oral history of that era um, for the Las Vegas Weekly back in 2006, and 
it, I mean, it was a 6,000 word story. So you think that I told everything there was to tell, but it really just scratched the surface and it hit a lot of people's nerves, not in a bad way, but in a good way, because you like literally the weekly was getting letters for weeks and weeks and weeks back when they were still running letter columns, you know, yeah. it was 2005. So this was internet era, but th- there was still a lot of focus on print. And I was like, I think there's something here. I think I touched a nerve. Um, so it never really, for me, I was like, well, I don't feel like the full story has been told. And I feel like there's something more going on here, you know? Um, this is, you see, you see what this is like having to work with this guy. It's, it's some terrible. Point, like, <laughs> awful. No, I, I, Get it together, I thought that Come you on. had, yeah, I know. I thought you had a, a follow up that you were planning on asking. So I, the JD I mean. stands for Jewish Dave. When I put him next <laughs> yeah. to the question. You didn't beat it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, no, but Dave, I know that you had attended. Yeah. The, the thing that I'd wanted you to ask him about is I know that you had attended um, the screening of the show, and I was just like, I wanted you, like, I don't know, like, what was, like, kind of, what was that like, and 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 you know, I think it's yeah. like I wanted to get some color behind, like, where was that screening held, like, what. I guess what I'm trying yeah. to get at is like, there's not like you you know the places 20 years ago where something like that would be would be done, and I feel like there's a like a dearth, like the. There isn't even venue. There isn't even places to do something cool like that anymore. I don't know. Yeah, it's it's hard to imagine, especially for for a film to to play anywhere near or around Maryland Parkway. It's it's kind of a nice thing that this theater now at the Boulevard Mall, uh, the Galaxy Theater exists now for that kind of thing. It's one of the the few revitalizations it seems like that is actually kind of opened up and become a thing on Maryland Parkway. And we'll talk more about that later. But, but yeah, I mean, that must've been a nice feeling though, PJ, to, to be able to have a theater to play it at on Maryland Parkway. Oh yeah. It was, and it was tough because, you know, we wanted to do the premiere somewhere on Maryland Parkway. Right. But when, when I started, you know, this project started in 2018, like in full, I mean, it had been gestating for, you know, 10 plus years, but we started filming in 2018 and I don't think galaxy had opened yet at the Boulevard mall. Mm -hmm. Um, and interestingly, I had actually just moved away from Vegas at the time. So I started working on this film after leaving Vegas after 25 years. Um, and I was like, well, I was thinking about maybe like the Clark County library, which is just off of Maryland, um, you know, Mm -hmm. on Flamingo, but, it was, I was like, well, well, I mean, I also, I mean, we're, 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 we're recording this still in the middle of a pandemic. Right. And yeah, the, sure. the film, I me, mean, that's been part of the challenge with releasing the film is, you know, this was supposed to be out a year ago and, you know, everything went sideways in the world. Some things went sideways in my own life. And, uh, I was really waiting for it to be safe enough to be able to have a, a premiere where people could turn out in droves basically, you know, and that we could do it in a proper venue where, you know, people could have drinks and like do all that stuff. And it just worked out that, you know, that galaxy luxury plus theater or whatever that had opened at the Boulevard mall opened a year or two ago. And, uh, yeah, they were, I mean, it was, it was, it was interesting to have it at that venue because if anyone knows anything about the Boulevard mall now, the Boulevard mall is this really strange, but sort of wonderful, like, mixed cultural sort of touch it's very it's you know there's like there's like a zoot suit store and like you can get rims there and there's like a sort of like kids 
quasi Chuck E. Cheese type of knockoff place. There's an aquarium. There's you know, but there's also a Goodwill, and like it's just it's a very strange place now. Um, but you know, it's a nice theater, and uh, and you know, I mean, there was, I mean, Dave, you were there, right? Like the yeah. the people it, we sold out, we oversold, and the people who I mean, there were people I hadn't seen in you know 20 plus years there and it was really like a reunion uh, it was weird it was yeah. it felt like a weird kind of high school reunion or a college reunion which yeah. that's the thing with with the film and that scene when i talked to people and i did the interviews one sort of common thread that kind of came out of that is you know even though this was happening across from a university it wasn't super tied into unlv there was a lot of people from right. across ages and demographics and backgrounds you know, some of whom were attending UNLV, but a lot of whom weren't. And yet it sort of felt like we were all going to this sort of informal, like punk rock college together, you know? And yeah. I, yeah. and those, those bonds that were formed, they've, you know, lasted all this time, 25, 30 years. Yeah, it's funny. UNLV is, like I said at the top, it, and like it's actually mentioned a couple times in your documentary, for people that don't know, it's a pretty big school, but it's a commuter school. Like you could, like you meet the people you meet are like will tell you like, oh, I've got an apartment in Henderson with some roommates, or you know, I've got an apartment. You know, me and my buddies moved here from. I mean, Dave and I made friends with this whole group of fifteen guys that had moved from uh, Ohio to you know, half of them were freshmen at UNLV. But to your point, PJ, half of them were just guys that were just there to like, <laughs> like I guess I live in Vegas now. I'm gonna join a band, you know, like that, like that, those kind of guys, and no intention of like attending the university. Dave and I went to UNLV, but it was like circumstantial to our experience. It just happened oh, yeah. to be something we did, right, Dave? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, going to UNLV was just the next thing to do when I moved to Las Vegas, so that's why I was there. But otherwise, yeah. whatever. It was just a place to hang out. But what, I would say, you know, something that was maybe a more cohesive organizing principle that you show in the in the in the docu in the documentary. It's actually you have a section called caffeine culture, and I want to kind of touch on all of these outmoded things that that are sort of extinct these days that that existed and held people together back then uh, and, and are featured pretty prominently in, in the movie. The first one are coffee shops, right? That was sort of, I mean, like I have very fond memories of Cafe Espresso Roma. I gotta say like, I lived in um, Ashton Park Apartments when at my freshman year of UNLV, mm -hmm. which is on Escondido, right behind uh, Roberto's Taco Shop now. And, uh, you know, I spent a lot of time in Cafe Espresso Roma and there was this really great memory I have where like, I was supposed to meet my mom. I was 18 or 19 years old. I was supposed to meet my mom at my apartment and she, I wasn't there yet. So she went to Cafe Espresso Roma, you know, 45 year old lady and uh, watched some of the poetry and then got up there and read some of her own poetry. And these people were super supportive, these teens, these kids, these young people were super supportive and like applauded for her. And she left there like floating on the, on clouds and she loved it. It was this awesome environment right it was this good feeling you didn't feel like walking into like kind of like a punk bar and feeling like a little uh on edge or sort of circumspect you know and it, it felt open mm -hmm. it felt welcoming and i don't know it, i feel like caffeine and that caffeine culture as as you outline in one of the early chapters in, in the documentary was super important probably as important as the fact that there was a university there it, i mean i i think it was the key thing it was the glue 
like there's there's a there's a through line and and uh, you probably want to talk about this you know that you know KUNV provided the soundtrack right but the coffee yeah, shops sure. they were the clubhouses right and they were very someone in the film says uh, I think it might have been Jeff Carter you know he said it was a very living room feeling and that was the crazy thing like you wouldn't like yeah people people go to coffee shops today like but they usually go to study or work on their screenplay or, you know, whatever. Like you might meet a friend, but it's a very like pointed thing. You know, mm-hmm. I would, I remember I would just show up, I would get off of work or, you know, out of school or whatever. And I would show up as soon as Cafe Copio opened, like four o'clock, whatever time it opened, it always opened late. Um, and I would grab a table and I had like a duffel bag because I wasn't cool. I didn't have like uh, like, like cool notebooks. I had like three ring binders <laughs> full of just loose leaf paper that I wrote my poetry in. And you know, this again, this is like, this is the mid nineties. So we didn't have like things to electronically store our writing and whatnot. So I literally carried a duffel bag around full of three ring binders of all of my poetry and stuff and, and stories because I would always reference previous work. So I wanted quick access to the previous work. Whereas now I'd, I'd go to my Google drive and pull it up on my phone. Right. Um, sure. And I would just sit down and, you know, get a giant mug of coffee. I mean, these things were like bowl size, you know, and they were like right. two bucks and, you know, a pack of Marlboros. And I would just sit there all night for like six or seven hours. And people would come in as the evening would go on and like by, you know, whatever time, eight or nine o'clock, and this is on any random weeknight, you know, it would be full of everybody you knew, but it's not like nobody coordinated this. Nobody was like, hey, we're all going to meet at Copio or Roma or, you know, Rainbow tonight. Like you just show up and you just hang out and like right. no one's, it, it, it was, and things would just happen. And that's how a lot of like collaborations happen. I mean, it's how a lot of relationships were formed. How you just, it was very organic and it was it was, I think, unique to that time because it was ha- that was happening a lot of places in the country. Like coffee shop culture, the way that it had boomed in sort of the late 50s and early 60s sort of resurged again in the late 80s, right. early 90s. Um, and, you know, you saw that in popular media, right? Like, you oh, know, sure. even Friends, like half, half of every episode of Friends is them just hanging out on a couch in a coffee shop and like they live there. And that's... That's how it was, well, you know. For like a, for a whole for a whole group of like people our age, uh, you were watching the coolest people in their twenties when you were like a teenager. The coolest people on television in their twenties were hanging out in coffee shops. They weren't at clubs or you know at bars or whatever. And so we just got the idea like that's what adults do. Adults go to these places and sit and have these quirky, you know, deep conversations or funny conversations and like. It, 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 that was an actual thing. It's funny because I feel bad for people who maybe didn't experience that, or maybe are young enough that they didn't, 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 didn't experience it. You know, it's, and we kind of caught that tail end of it. There was a lot of coffee um, spots r- right up and down Maryland Parkway, and I thought that was a really interesting place for you to start that the this this recounting of that story. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And it none of them lasted very long. No. You know, um, some of that was you know, personal issues with the business owners. Some of that was the fact that a lot of people weren't buying coffee, you know, like, I mean, I would, I would, like I said, I would buy one cup and then just get refills all night and they didn't charge you for that, you know, but a lot of people wouldn't at all, like especially the poetry readings, you know, you'd have a hundred people in there 
And maybe, maybe a quarter of those people actually bought something. There was never a line at the counter for the barista. Like, no. Because pe- you'd see, and you would see, people would have 7-Eleven cups or, you know, like just whatever. Like, it was, it wasn't the greatest business model to just let people hang out all night in your, you know, coffee shop. But, uh, uh, you know, and I think we took it for granted. And, like, being naive people in your teens and 20s, you were like, why did this thing go away? And it's like, well, how much money did you actually spend there? You know? Yeah. I remember one of the absolute darkest, like, moments of, I don't know, like, the immediate aftermath of 9-11. I think I was a a junior in, in college, and we were at a place called The Rock, which I'm sure you are familiar with. And uh, I was contemplating and sharing with my girlfriend at the time my plan to join the military because I was caught up in the patriotic fervor of like, you know, got to go. Like I was not the, the, the leftist, the avowed socialist that I am these days. I was very caught up in the moment. I felt like this was the, the, the thing of consequence that men of consequence should participate in in this moment, right? And 19-year-old me talking about, uh, you know, leaving. I'm, I'm, I'm leaving you. We're gonna have to break our apartment lease. I'm, I'm joining the, I'm joining the military. And uh, somebody, a friend of ours, showed up, well, sat down, and interrupted this very tense, uh, terse conversation with a boot filled with beer. But I mean, a real boot, like a fireman boot, because the uh, this place, The Rock, had a had a deal where you could go on Thursday nights, and they would fill up whatever container you brought full of beer for a dollar. And so, so my this friend of ours had filled up a, a fireman boot with beer and was drinking out of it, and um, yeah, I didn't join the military, so I I can't really complain. Uh, you were. I'm just wondering if you ever ran those plans by me at any point during that time. Cause... Don't you remember that whole phase I went through where I went to like that... the I went to Nellis, I took the ASVAB test and everything. I did. <laughs> I, I scored really well on it. I did. I, I was this close. This close, guys. Um, you were serious about this. No, I was serious. I went, I was like, I was like 90% down the road. I was on my way to Lackland Air. I was like, I, I had for a 36 uh, hours. He for was 30, very serious about this. For, for a little while. I was, I, I mean, I went through the whole, the, the whole uh, process of it. And I decided, you know, what changed my mind is I got a, I got a good job. I got a, a, a the job bartending, Dave, and that actually paid good for the first time in my mm-hmm. life. Um, that, that's so true about the military though. Yeah, that I mean, like, as soon, yeah. when you don't have another yes. option, what do you do? You sign up for, and then you're like, "Oh, I had another that's option." What it's there for that's yep, a whole exactly. other, yeah, that's a whole different podcast. But yes, one day yeah. we'll we'll get into that. Um, you were talking about things when we talk about co- um, coffee culture, or coffee shops, defunct parts of our culture, and you are a journalist. You mentioned um, KUNV at the beginning of that last question. And I wanted to touch on how different media is now and how that played a role. At some point, Dave, it's funny because I was, again, watching the documentary and I remarked on the fact that uh, KUNV changed their format in May of 98. And then a month later, you and I moved to Las Vegas in right, June of yeah. 98. And then we started making our, our sort of network of friends in, in uh, you know August, whenever the fall semester started our freshman year. And- by, by the way, funny funny thing about that, just really quick, um, before I moved here, I, I called KUNV to find out how could I become a DJ once I get to Las Vegas. And they said, become a communications major and then come talk to us. So that's the only reason I was a communications major. And of course, then it wasn't even a thing anyway. So yeah, by then, yeah. It, by then media was already in full blown meltdown. I mean, mm-hmm. so much of what you show in, in, in uh, Parkway is um, 
this like bygone era of 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 real kind of like bootstrap journalism writing about you know like like you don't see features written anymore and these magazines that were coming out like scope magazine and all these i remember during our era we had um smash magazine i don't know if that was around back then but like it was you know that that was just you could open up this little breeder's digest size magazine and read four thousand words about you know i don't know avenge sevenfold because they were playing (laughs) next week or something like that and you're like damn that's way more information than i ever wanted to know about avenge sevenfold but now i know it maybe i'll go to that show uh but i don't know how did how did like that last pre-internet era of media play into building up Maryland Parkway into what it was before its 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 eventual decline because it seems like that was a really the radio and the printed word were really really critical it was and that was that was why I included in the film there's an entire uh, you know section on um, the on the, the the print media spec I mean like the alternative print media uh, sort of spectrum uh, also because it was very tied into Maryland Parkway um, it's this is a this is like a much bigger picture thing but like before media became fragmented and it wasn't just the internet i mean part of this was also like the rise of um of you know uh cable and premium cable and like the sort of splintering of things but like even just looking at like radio and print and tv uh it used to be that everybody got their information from the same sources right so you had a very limited number of sources and that's where you went for your information so uh that provided sort of another connecting point for everyone you know um and KUNV being like the preeminent college radio station of the time and you know it it it, it played the stuff that no one else was playing at least until kind of alternative radio started coming around in the middle of the 90s but even then there wasn't like that community aspect to it right like it was just commercial radio and it was weird because KUMV wasn't just a radio station it was also an institution and it had a physical presence on Maryland Parkway right it was you know the, right. the studios were right in the old student union right across from all the coffee shops so like People would just go. There hang were some. Out there were there. some um, so, some retailers that 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 are former retailers in, in the show that said that they opened up specific. I can't remember if it was a coffee shop or record shop owner. It was it was Benway Bop. Benway, yeah, exactly, right, right because right. because right across the street from from the record station, intentionally there was intention behind that decision. Yeah, absolutely, and there was that, but it was also like it was the place you went to find out about who was playing where. And, uh, you know, you were to, you know, win tickets to go see Nine Inch Nails or, you know, like I, you, there were, there weren't, you know, we didn't have, there weren't websites with calendars and there wasn't social media and there wasn't anything like that. So like you had to pick up a weekly paper to find out what was going on. And Mm -hmm. if you didn't pick it up at the weekly paper, you would be at a coffee shop and you pick up flyers or you would listen to KUMV. Because the mainstream radio stations at the time, even the ones that were playing like alternative music, quote unquote, they, it's not like they were listing off, you know, concert calendars, you know, they, they probably ran ads for like the Thomas and Mack Center, you know, and be like, okay, here's where, you know, REM is playing next. But like, you know, right. all the sort of stuff at the Hunt Ridge Theater or, you know, stuff that was happening at the bars or the coffee shops, like the only way to find out about that stuff was either pick up a weekly paper or listen to KUMB or go to a coffee shop. 
and or a record store, right? Like record stores and coffee shops are almost interchangeable in a way because again, yeah. r- record stores are one of those. Uh, the the third thing on my list of again defunct things. I think there's one record store employee in all of Clark County now, and it's Dave, and that's it. Yeah. And he's like the only employee <laughs> left in in all of Clark County that actually somebody who derives their income from working at a record store. That's like <laughs> another kind of node of communication that doesn't really exist anymore. Node of community that doesn't exist anymore. And we don't have any room on the on the on the counter for any flyers, so it's no good for anybody else. So. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, look, like record stores have made a comeback, just in terms of like, here's a place for you to buy vinyl, because vinyl's made a comeback. But they're not community centers like they used to be, you know. Like right. even even up through the mid two thousands, like even a place like Zia Records, like I would I would go to Zia Records and you know you'd see. I I've I've seen I've seen so many shows there like uh, Jurassic Five played there. Uh, I remember oh, wow. seeing I don't remember like there's just like it, even even after sort of like what we think of as sort of the the post Napster era of music like I feel like record stores still provided sort of a community space. It was really and this gets touched on in the film a bit. And I don't mean to you talk smack about social media because, you know, uh, I derive some of my income from there. But, like, not that social media is going to come after me. Um, but, <laughs> Careful. like, the need to connect in public spaces doesn't really exist the way that it used to. You know, people still do things. People go to shows and, you know, people still go to, you know, they go to improv shows. They go to comedy shows. They go to, you know, poetry readings or whatever, kind of, if you can find them. Um, but... There's not the need to have to go out in the world. And obviously, in the last two years, you know, there's a lot of fear about going out in the world. So if anything, it's reinforced the fact that like, hey, we can all exist without ever seeing each other, which isn't really that healthy of a thing. And I'm not a Luddite by any means. You know, like I, I, the fact, the fact that we're doing this podcast that you guys are able to, you know, like, you know, we're not in the same room. We're not, uh, we're not even in the same city. We're not in the same state. And that's great. But, um, you know, if I, if I walk into a coffee shop, you know, where I live now, it's just a bunch of people staring at their screens and I'm going there to stare at my screen and we're never going to talk to each other. Whereas back in the day, like, yeah, I might go to a coffee shop and I'd be sitting there writing for a while, but then I would like get up to go get refill and then talk to whoever was in line next to me. And then next thing you know, we're probably forming a band, which was the thing that literally happened, you know? So I feel like those, those uh, opportunities for sort of connection and collaboration don't really exist anymore. And I don't know if there's an appetite for them to exist anymore. I don't know if the new generation cares about that or knows about that. Yeah. It's like that. It's like that appetite is being filled by the, the virtual experience. I mean, I see it happening like in only in the last month or two, have I been really paying attention to TikTok as an app, right? Like I've been kind of consuming some media on there and I see it happen. And I see these things that turn into pretty creative collaborations between people who are pretty creative and maybe would never, maybe in the past would have met each other in a coffee shop or maybe never, more likely never would have met because they're, like you say, across the country. So you celebrate it in one hand, but then it really does come at a cost. It came at a cost of that organic in-person community that uh you know just isn't there anymore um dave i know you had a question about the like musical aspect and sort of like the the, the bands that, that that were fostered in this era 
Yeah, I mean, music and bands are like just they run through everything in the documentary because that's, of course, just like the central thing. Like you said, you know, with with the coffee shops and and record stores, music is runs through all of that. Um, Obviously, we had, you know, some breakout bands from Vegas, The Killers, Panic at the Disco. Um, But were there any during that time that is uh, explored in the documentary that you thought maybe were going to break out and didn't quite happen? I mean, I guess it depends on your your definition of breakout, right? I mean, around, I think maybe right before that time, and they're not, they weren't part, there wasn't, this is the thing, the, the documentary focuses on a very narrow part of the Vegas scene in the 1990s, right? Because it's about, mm. it's about that culture that formed on Maryland Parkway that was very, very specific. But it was also part of a larger scene that was happening in everything, music, poetry, art, you know, you had downtown sort of starting at the end of the 90s, but you also had things happening in all sorts of places, right? Um, you know, one of the bands that really blew up in the second half of the 90s locally was 12 Volt Sex. Um, mm-hmm. They had signed to RCA. Um, they had put out a record and they were given no marketing support and the record just right. fell flat, you know? Um, and they... You know, they were, I mean, they had probably played some shows at the, at the cafes and stuff, you know, but they were kind of a bit more of like a pop rock band. So, you know, when the House of Blues opened up and those sort of venues, they were playing at those sort of joints. Um, obviously, you know, they never attained killer status, you know. I mean, no one had. I mean, outside of Panic at the Disco, no one's come even close. And right. it's funny, uh, uh, one of uh, one of my friends who's a, a, the editor of uh, Desert Companion magazine in Las Vegas, he put like an informal poll on Facebook the other day and he's like, it must be in preparation for an upcoming issue. And he was like, hey, you know, who do you consider the greatest band to break out of Las Vegas? And I mean, you know, people all had their opinions, but I was like, it's kind of inarguable. Like just if you look at sheer numbers yeah. of record sales, Grammy nominations, just, you know, notoriety, duration, you know, it's the killers by by a far leap and then, you know, panic at the disco right. behind them. Then you, you know, I mean, you've got like, you know, Shereem who may someday surpass, but hasn't gotten there yet. Um, and then everyone else is just sort of below that. Right. I mean, even, hmm. you know, I was, I was in a band that had, uh, we had, you know, I was in a goth band called Morgana Athena, which was very popular yeah. in the area in the early nineties. And, you know, at some point in the kind of late nineties, we had signed to, uh, to a triple X, uh, subsidiary and nothing came of that, you know, like we right. thought, okay, our next step is we're going to put out a record and, you know, go and, you know, bands fall apart. Right. Um, sure. Yeah. So there's not, I mean, there's oh, not yeah. a, there's not really a legacy there, but it is, you know, it is of note. It's like, well, you know, where were the killers earliest shows that, well, they were playing at Cafe Espresso Roma, right? Like literally right yeah. before it. It closed. Uh, I think The Rock. Did they play at The Rock as well? Or yeah, they play at The Rock. Is that there's right? a there's a there's a there's a shot of uh, one of their marquees at The Rock in the film. Yeah, just like us, Dave. They played at The yeah. Rock, so we are oh, the yeah. same thing. I am same trajectory. Brandon Flowers, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Just any day now. I read somewhere <laughs> that um, Mr. Brightside, Dave. I think I ran this by you, P- BJ. You probably know more about this than me. You're talking about a band, The Killers. That came out of this, you know, some some semblance of this or some like later era of this scene that we're talking about. Mr. Brightside, I read, was on the Billboard like Rock 100 or something like that for 12 years, which is insane to me. It was like it, it was, but it makes sense because 
how often do you just walk down the street and you like there's very few songs anymore that you walk down the street and you just hear them still playing the way that it used to be back back then that's one of them like you walk into macy's and that song is playing like it, it doesn't matter it's crazy that that came out of that little place. it's it's crazy how the endurance of that yeah, song it's insane yeah yeah oh and and in the uk they consider it basically a second yeah. national anthem yeah like you think that song's popular here like in the uk that is it's yeah. nuts the um yeah I good mean, on that it's, it's really awesome them. i remember when that that whole that was a, a really energized moment and it, by then the energy had dispersed away from maryland parkway but vegas still felt like this very viable creative place to be um it didn't feel located in any one place it felt like like there was an opening of sort of commercial options it was funny because dave and i were like we're texting about this you know this interview before we got on with you and i texted him two pictures i texted him a picture of um I was like, "This is the Boulevard. This is the Maryland Parkway. Uh, this is Maryland Parkway during the era of the movie." And it was a picture of um, Dexter Holland from Offspring back when he had dreads in the early '90s. And then I said, "And then I was like, and this is our Maryland Parkway." And it was a picture of like uh, Ixnay on the Ombre era Dexter Holland with like the spiky, um, you know, <laughs> the, the spiky hair. And I was like, it, it, "I'm trying to like pin down." The way things changed and I like the beginning of your documentary is like very Nirvana and then the end of it I, we know was very like Von Dutch. I don't know how to explain what happened, but it feels like it followed a contour <laughs> that a lot of like popular culture followed. I don't know. What do you think? Like, how did it change? I wanted to like kind of pick your brain a little bit on how Vegas became. I think it's easy to just say it became like tackier or cheesier or I don't know, but it just you could feel it and you can see it watching the documentary. What's your take on that? I mean, the like actual Maryland Parkway, like what's there or like the, the scene itself. Like what? Okay. So the scene in my mind started to reflect what was sort of not popular. Popular is the wrong word. What was cool. It was reflecting what was cool and what was cool became cornier in the early two thousands. It became, cheesier kind of and it, it had to reflect that i'm thinking of like an a, 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 an ecosystem where dave and i thrived which was dollar beer night at moose mcgillicuddy's it became dollar beer night at moose mcgillicuddy's mm. and it was like yeah that was fun but it had maybe less artistic merit less staying power it had i don't know like <laughs> well, <laughs> it i mean look was it's... something different you know but but you're but you're i mean that's it's look there there's a college there right there's a major university there and there were college bars which don't exist anymore i mean that's that's the weird thing about maryland park yeah. right the weird it's so this whole thing is fascinating to me because i you know i i professionally was a journalist but uh in it in college i studied sociology a double major in journalism and sociology and i as a as a sociologist it's fascinating to me because it's really a microcosm of what was happening nationally, right? You had you had this adoption of what was once underground into the mainstream, and then you had sort of a, I mean, I guess a lot of people would say bastardization of it, right? But the the but you know, Maryland Parkway should have always been and was a college scene, right? Like 
So you had uh, Moose McGillicuddy's, which was formerly, uh, oh man, I can't remember, but it was another college, like, you know, Tom, you know, Tom and Jerry's became The Rock, like, all, but all these places were, they were basically college bars. I didn't know it was formerly anything. That's crazy. You're blowing my mind. I didn't know that it was yeah. formerly anything. That's, we thought it was there since the beginning of time. We thought that like, yeah, that like dinosaurs would drink dollar beers at, at Moose McGillicuddy's. I had no idea it was something before that. <laughs> well, yeah. But look, I mean, and these places were around in the 80s. Uh, there, there used to be a place called Captain America's, I guess. Supposedly, I don't know. I wasn't there. Um but, uh, you know, I think that's also part of why huh. you're talking about like, okay, there's the sort of like culture stuff with a capital C versus, you know, whatever Las Vegas culture is, right? Um, it, it, not everything has to be part of that thing, right? Like dollar beer night for a bunch of, you know, undergrads is just as valid as poetry night for, you know, a bunch of uh, washed up uh, uh, people, you know, like whatever. Like I'm just saying, like it. And and when you look at the change in culture, it, I don't think that even had even had the businesses survived, I don't think that you would have the same thing happening there now. Anyway, right? Uh, and obviously, in reality, it's not that the culture went away; it's just that it moved. Like in Vegas, at least, like it shifted to downtown. And that's because even though Vegas is huge now, even though there's two million people plus living in the valley, like the number of people who are really intimately involved in, you know, the arts and culture and, you know, writing and uh, music and whatever, it's still a really, really small number of people. And a lot of it are the same people who have been like, I think, I think about uh, Jeff Carter, very good friend of mine. He's in the film. He yeah. came up in that scene. He was an assistant editor at Scope Magazine. He, went, he was one of the, one of the first uh, writers at Vegas.com um, back when it was actually a content website before it became a travel website. Um, and you know he leaves town for 10 plus years, goes to Seattle. He comes back and where, do, where is he now? He's the senior editor at the Las Vegas Weekly, which is used to be Scope Magazine. So like the same guy who was editing Scope Magazine, you know, 25 years ago is now just editing its, you know, kind of uh, its progeny, right? Like it's just a good example of how as much as things change, they don't. And I kind of like, you know, I was I was a quasi mover and shaker back in the mid nineties. And then I kind of was again in the, you know, uh, in the two thousands and you know, the only reason that's changed is because I left town, you know, otherwise I would still be spearheading, you know, like concerts and music festivals and, you know, publications and whatever. Like it's just, it, it's a very small pool of people. And I don't think that once you start moving locations that there's enough people to support all you know multiple locations in vegas it's funny I, i'm thinking of this bygone era that where you used to be able to get three fat robust 100 page plus um alt weeklies the you know along with las vegas weekly you could you know walk out of any subway walk out of any any um mcdonald's and there was a uh a, um a box for las vegas weekly las vegas city life and the mercury uh, mm -hmm. Las Vegas Mercury, I think it was called. I forget, but I loved it. It was awesome. I think of like, you mentioned Jeff Carter. Jeff Carter's writing 
I remember in like 2003, he had this this series that was called I Zombie, and it was just about like a complete fantastical, you know, Gonzo, I think three or four piece series in the weekly. That was the thing that got me into the idea of being a journalist. And I was like, oh, I didn't know that you could do this too, that you could be a reporter and, you know, report and also write some shit like this and just get people to publish it. And within like a year and a half after that, I was working at the Herald. I went from selling cell phones to being a reporter at the Miami Herald because of partly because of that, you know, and it was just, I don't know, man, it was like an era that you can't really, like you, like you said before, you can't really really duplicate it dave i know that you when we talk about like duplicating it you were you you still live in vegas so like you had this question that we were going back and forth about of like how could something of merit be like rebuilt i don't know what we're, i'll let you ask it actually yeah i mean and it kind of goes along with what you were just saying pj about how uh, the culture still exists it just kind of moves around and, and it does it, there's no like kind of centralization of it anymore but like and assuming there is such a thing as a post-COVID world, um, you know, we still have social media, we still have all the other things that kind of got in the way of that. Uh, like, what do you think has to happen for things to centralize again, to actually have places where people kind of congregate and hang out the way that they used to? Uh, I mean, I think there has to be the will for it, honestly. It's the places are there. I mean, go downtown Las Vegas. Downtown's great. Mm. Like, downtown's been great for a while, but like, I had kind of a different perspective leaving for a few years. And then, you know, I like, I used to go to, I used to go, even when I moved away from Vegas, cause I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not that far away. I'm 250 miles away. I would come back at least once a month for, you know, either filming or for, you know, like work related stuff or whatever. So, you know, the, the progress and changes wouldn't be that evident. Uh, but because of COVID, there was like a good year and a half that I hadn't been in Vegas. And I came back a couple of months ago when we did, you know, we did the premiere in October yeah. and I was just going down Main Street and it's just like, it's wild how much more stuff. I mean, there was already a bunch of stuff there before, but like, you know, there's a comedy club there. There's a new music venue opening. There's, you know, I mean, there's so many microbreweries. There's, you know, there's just, you know, and they're not, you know, it's commerce. You know, it's restaurants and bars and, you know, unfortunately, the arts yeah. district isn't much about the arts anymore. I mean, you still have the arts factory and there's still galleries and studios. Um, and, you know, I can't really speak to how strong the community is around that. I can tell you, you know, I was involved with First Friday from fairly early on. Um, you know, the founders of First Friday, you know, they were all, you know, we were all friends. We all came out, you know, it was it, it came out of the same yeah. scene or whatever. Um and I noticed over the years how it changed from being something where, you know, a community of artists and art supporters would get together once a month to it being a street festival, right? Like an attraction. Yeah. Uh, but it, that's common everywhere. I mean, I, you know, I live in Orange County now in California and uh, in Santa Ana, which is the where the county seat is here, you know, there's there's a old downtown there and they have an arts district there and they do a first Saturday thing and it looks very similar to you know first Friday it's you know there's break dancers and there's you know uh some live music and there's some tents on the street and there's a couple galleries but it's mostly people going to restaurants and bars and things like that right yeah. um and then the rest of the you know during the rest of the time there's not a lot going on there um 
I just don't know that people need that anymore. And this is, this is you know, I've been doing screenings, so we've been sort of treating the rollout of the film sort of like an indie band doing a tour, right? We're like, hey, you know, we're going to come to L.A., and then we're going to come to Portland, and then we're going to come to Seattle, and, you know, we're going to go to these places, and we're going to, you know, 50 people are going to show up, and we're going to sell merch, and then we're going to move on to the next town. Um, and we do Q&As, you know. I, the, the reason I want to do that was so that I could be there to do Q&As, and we have people who live in those respective towns who are in the film, you know, uh, appear on the panel. And a question that keeps coming up in these Q&As is like, well, could that happen again on Maryland Parkway? Specifically, not somewhere else in Vegas, but you know. And my answer is why? Why should it happen again on Maryland Parkway in 2021? Why should what college students, let's say, in 2021 want in their area be the same as what we wanted in 1994 or 1998 or whatever, right? Like, it. I feel like there's a presumption that the thing that was dear to you or that you remember being really important, and this is where nostalgia comes in, right? Like, is the way that things should always be and this is the, the thing that sure. people should want. And I'm not, it, you would think a guy who just made a documentary about, you know, a scene that happened 25 years ago from his youth would be very nostalgic, but I'm not at all. Like, I think nostalgia is... Yeah, you're not precious about that. Yeah, like, I mean, I, I'm grateful for those and I for those times and I love it, but um, it couldn't happen again and it necessarily shouldn't happen right. again, you know? Like, the bands that were the greatest bands of the time in 1994 aren't going to be the bands that are the greatest now, right? Um, you know, a lot, I was... <laughs> I, somebody was talking about U2 um, and, you know, there's a lot of hate for U2 these days, but if you went back to, you know... Joshua Tree era U2, when this was the biggest band right. in the world, they could do no wrong. If U2 had broken up right after Akun Baby, we would still be talking about U2 like they were the Beatles, right? Like, like they, were they were the, Beatles. the Irish yeah. Beatles. Yeah. But they yeah, just kept sure. going. And I kind of feel yeah. like it's almost sort of a blessing in a way that Maryland Parkway's scene imploded the way that it did because we can all talk about it like it was this mythical beast that we all have this shared experience about over this long span of time, right? Like you guys are talking about it coming in at the tail end. I was there sort of at the middle, you know, and I'm friends with people who were there at the beginning and we all have the shared experience, but we don't have to deal with the repercussions of what it looks like now because it doesn't exist anymore. Right. And it's a little sad, but I think it's fine. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's only like to your point though, yeah. it's only sad if you physically go to Maryland Parkway and look at it and you're like, damn, what the fuck <laughs> happened here? Who dropped a bomb on this whole section of my youth? But yeah. yeah, I mean, like, find your fulfillment somewhere else or don't. But why does it have to be exactly the same? That's a really good point. Why does it like I, I, I've said this before on the show, Dave, I've said I said it at your wedding. Nostalgia is poison. Nostalgia can be poison. It can sure. it can it can blind you to the shit that's in front of you right now. And that you can do or be doing or be building yeah. right now. Look at the world of movies right now. Right. Everything is fucking nostalgic. What's the biggest movie right now? West Side Story. <laughs> Just came out yesterday. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Although, you know, in defense of yeah. Maryland Parkway contemporaneously, especially around UNLV, I mean it's Good fucking luck. You're gonna you're gonna you're gonna defend the Maryland Parkway right now. Well <laughs> it's good luck with that. It's physically. Have you, have, Dave? When was when was the last time you were in town? Or sorry, 
My, last time I was, <laughs> Dave Q. Yeah, yeah. Last time, last yeah, Not last time I was in town, February right before <laughs> pandemic, February twenty twenty. Um, I was, we were, you know, pe- listeners of the show know that uh, we were full out in support of Bernie, knocking on doors and, you know, participating in the campaign on a caucus weekend. And uh, after knocking on doors in like East, uh, off East Nellis, out of curiosity, I went to Maryland Parkway and I got like a, uh, I don't know, like a, like a wrap somewhere or something like that from some commercial wrap place. Yeah. And I just walked, I don't know, the distance from... The distance from, uh, I don't know, es- like not Escondido. What is it? The yeah, Escondido down to down to like down to Trop. Yeah. So almost all the way from Flamingo to Trop, and I got a good look at it, and it was like, it was just mostly fenced off and nothing. There was just nothing. Everything was raised. Like even the building of, the building that I never thought they would knock down, the freaking Frog Building, which had yeah. like so much stuff. It was like a three story building that was like a but- pretty big building. Um, that was flattened. I couldn't believe it. Right, but what? But what? Well, so if this was early 2020, you also saw there was a lot of construction going on. So that's the thing. The, it's transforming into maybe what it needs to be for the university more than ever before because those construction yeah. projects. So like where the freaking frog was laid out, where that building was destroyed, that's now a new mid-rise multi-purpose building right um multi-unit where the promenade used to be which eventually became campus village and that's completely torn down um that's going to be another very similar mixed-use project with you know retail on the first floor and then offices i i think that's just it might just be offices on the top but the other ones are residential also and that's where like unlv is moving a lot of their because they're running out of room on that campus. So like, you know, the uh, the old Carl's Jr. is now an MFA studio. Um, the UNLV police yeah. moved into that uh, the building, the mid-rise, I think it's called the U, maybe? That's what the project's called. Um, and there's a bunch of new businesses. Now all the businesses are, you know, they're just like very just commercial sandwich and, you know, coffee yeah. and sushi. Franchise heavy. And it seems very franchise heavy. Honestly, I mean, if that's what if that's what attracts UNLV students to come across the street during in between classes, then that's what's going to attract them. Because obviously, the, the infrastructure and the desire there for you know a music venue or a you know or records, there's just you know a, a Gen Z doesn't care about that. You know, a Zoomer doesn't care about that, and right. they don't know about it. You know, and the ones that do, like. They're going to seek it out, and guess where they're going to end up going? They're going to end up going downtown. They're going to do literally the like exact opposite thing yeah. that we did, where we went to Maryland Parkway to find stuff when we were kids. They're going to have to leave Maryland Parkway to go find stuff, you know, as kids. So it's kind of interesting. And I mean, yeah, it's sad to see all those. Literally, someone asked, they were like, "Well, is there? If I went to Maryland Parkway today, could I find any of the places that are in the film?" And the answer is no. Literally not one. As a matter of fact, it's been really hard. I do the screenings and there's a part, there's a part where someone says, well, there's a few holdouts. There's uh, um, Cash for Chaos, which is still there, and Alternate Reality Comics. Oh. Alternate Reality Comics isn't there anymore. Ralph moved his store to Eastern near the airport or something like that, or in Pecos, somewhere over there. So even Alternate Reality Comics is not there anymore. And they've been there for 25 years. That's crazy. That's you know? crazy. What about like, uh, is... is- the building that had Buffalo Exchange is that still there? Like, well, yeah, that's, that's so that's where that's alternate reality had moved into the one building of the there. spaces that yeah. used to be, it used to be Tower, 
that was all that tower. shape that corner yeah yeah so it was mm-hmm. tower took you know it was like six thousand square feet and then that got broken up one you know it was buffalo exchange for a while and then it was a dispensary and then alternate reality comics had like two pads and they're gone now too so it's just you know dispensary liquor store i don't know cell phone store dive bar literally dive bar uh you know, and then the only thing that's sort of like kind of quasi-culturally relevant there is Cash for Chaos, which is like a little punk rock gear and record poster store. I don't know how they've survived. I assume they do most of their business online at this point, I would have to imagine. But, um, you know, that's it. That's it's it. It's crazy that they're still there. <laughs> I, I, was, I, was going to, I was going to alternate reality comics before I moved to Las Vegas when I would spend the summers with my grandparents uh, in, in, in Vegas when I was in high school, when I was maybe 13, 14 years old, I think. I, was, I, would, I would go there. I have memories of buying books there. It's, that's, that's crazy. Look, we're going to transition. Now we're going to put you on the hot seat. So far, we've been giving you the time to like answer the questions and talk about this pretty awesome documentary that we've had a lot of fun watching, and I watched two times. But we are going to uh, turn the spotlight around and um, and quiz you and test your bona fides. Uh, see exactly oh how much you know when we when we bring you outside of Maryland Parkway. Okay, this is a game that we put together, Dave and I, called Biggest Venue Trivia, the Beyond Maryland Parkway Edition. Uh, for this challenge, <laughs> we are going to test you by giving you... Here's how it's going to work. We're going to give you a cross streets in the greater Clark County area where there was at some point a venue or a hub or a node that contributed some way to this stew of culture that we've been talking about. We'll give you a brief description with some hints. It's your job to tell us the name if you can. Dust off uh, you know, the, the archives in your brain and see if you can pull some of these obscure venues um, out of your ass. Uh, some will be easy let's say, and some will be maybe a little bit more difficult. For example, if I were to tell you, this is just the the sample problem, okay? So this one's gonna be super easy. If I were to put you uh, on the corner of East Naples and South University Drive and tell you to go pop some trucker meth in the parking lot, meet up with me for a night of video poker, rockabilly, and refreshing shots of ass juice, where would we be? Double down saloon. Very easy, okay, so you got the the game. You know what we're doing here. Um, That one's a really easy one. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't think any of these are still in business, uh, if I had to guess. I don't, I don't yeah. think they are. Except Double Down, of course. But uh, yeah. Let's jump to the real one. Dave, you and I can sort of alternate off of these, all right? This, sure. This is going uh, to be a challenge. Some of these I barely rem- remember. First real one. PJ, put yourself on the corner of Eastern and Sahara. This bar was garbage, literally decorated from trash. But its crusty back alley ambiance was home to some of the best hardcore punk and sh- uh, uh, hardcore and punk shows in Vegas. It's also a venue where our band, the Polar Bear MCs, performed shortly before it went out of business. PJ, where are we? The junkyard. Ah, he got it. The junkyard. Yes. Ding, ding, ding. Right. That's right. Nice. Dave, how about? Oh, Dave, I have to do the if next. You remember, one. I, I, I covered, I covered local music for years. You're gonna yeah, know you this. You should lot. be able to get. I wrote these. about the junkyard a lot. Okay, I would think so. Dave, I'm gonna do the next one, and then you. Can but get... let's see if you can stump me. I want to. Uh, this is be interesting. Okay, this one, this one. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. We'll see. You. Here, here's why I think you might not get this one. You might have been just like a couple of years past the using your fake ID era. <laughs> to like be at this to be going to this bar and they didn't really have any kind of okay. musical credentials to it so next up we are staying on eastern but we're heading south to the corner of tropicana this was a place that was the home of las vegas's most notorious penny draft night in the late 90s 
a place where even the most absurdly amateurish fake IDs were honored as though they were produced by Treadstone for Jason Bourne. Not a venue, but a big-time college party spot and, again, notorious because it was also the last employer of convicted mass murderer Zane Floyd, a bouncer who personally checked my fake ID a number of times before he went on a killing spree on June 3rd of 1999 in an Albertsons grocery store. Um, between this notoriety and numerous underage drinking violations, this bar was shuttered shortly thereafter. PJ, where are we? Eastern and Trop? Eastern and Trop. And can you tell me when it was shuttered? Oh, God, it had to be shuttered 1999, 1999. It went out of business in 99. Oh, I'm, I'm picturing it. It's one of these, it's like one of these, uh, one of these shopping centers that's anchored by an Albertsons and it's in. Oh, I know exactly the shopping center. Yeah. And it was the middle part. It was the middle section. It was like the L, the L shaped, uh, yeah. sh- uh shopping oh. center. Yeah. Yeah. You, you got me on this one. Dave, what not... is, what is the venue? Where are we? The venue is a place I've never been. Remember, it's oh. called Sneakers. Sneakers. This oh, was a legendary right. place. Sneakers. A legendary. Oh my god. For all yes. the wrong reasons, kind of place. Yeah. Yeah. Closed before I ever got a fake ID, so I never got to go. So. <laughs> I, I, I. You're correct. I never hung out there. I, but I could picture it. Like I knew exactly where it was. Because I mean, mostly, most of the time I lived in Vegas, I lived either around Maryland Parkway or on the east side of town. So like, it wasn't far yeah. from there. Yeah. Dave, no, not at all. you got the next one. All right, I'll take the next one. Okay, so we're going to go a little bit more upscale with this one. Uh, less trucker meth, more uncut Colombian raw. Less ass juice, more pimpin' hoe balls. On Fridays and Saturdays, your average UNLV student probably couldn't afford a night out at this freestanding mega club mainstay on Las Vegas Boulevard and Harmon. But during the week... And during certain times of the year, you could find decent local talent playing on the main stage as their fans snuck in flasks and cans of beer to avoid paying $12 retail for a Heineken. The Polar Bear MCs played at this venue, too, and it was one of our biggest shows ever, actually, uh, at its nadir, just as the club crowd was losing interest and moving to the richer spots like nearby Studio 54, Rum Jungle, and Raw. By 2004, it was shuttered for good. PJ, where were we? Can I, because it's one of two places, can I clarify, was it on Las Vegas Boulevard, but not actually at Harmon, maybe between, let's say, Harmon and Trop? That sounds so right. So it would be Club Utopia. That's right. Ding, ding, ding. Right? Yes. Okay. You got it. <laughs> nice. <laughs> um, yeah, Club Utopia. We, we played a great show there, and we actually, I saw a few shows there, and I don't know. That oh, was yeah. that. That had to be million dollar real estate. A place that took that, that over. A place took that over after it closed, and I saw a few really good shows there. I saw the Stills there. Well, it it was Empire Ballroom later on. Empire yep. Ballroom, that's right. And yeah. I I saw um, Crystal Method at Empire Ballroom. Sure. I saw My Life with the Thrill Kill Cult at Utopia. I played at Utopia in the side room. Nice. Uh, we all have that in common. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But maybe yeah. you play in the main room. I don't know. Oh, we played on the main room on on like a Monday night. Like, so. yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's um, a whole story. So this one I think is going to be a little easy. I was disheartened to learn that after this Flamingo Decatur, Las Vegas institutions survived so much, like 9-11, economic recessions, spates of violence, overdevelopment and encroachment from the nearby mega resorts like the Palms and the Rio before that. It was finally driven out of business last year by COVID. 
Something about the low ceilings, lack of a stage, and how the assorted pool tables and furniture were just kind of lazily shoved out of the way so that band members, uh, by the band members that would play, gave off this really authentic early punk vibe that I don't think can be replicated. If the band Pennywise and Social Distortion had a baby, and that baby was a bar, it would be this bar. PJ, where are we? Flamingo indicator. More on Flamingo. It's like it's not exactly on the corner. Just it's, east of it's Decatur. It's just it's just yeah, east of Decatur. I I know the place. I've been to the place. I went to a Sisters of Mercy after party there about about ten years ago. That sounds right. <laughs> a lot of local hip hop. Uh, a lot of local yeah, hip hop. Yeah, 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 yep, 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 yep. And my God, I cannot remember the name of it for the life of me. It was it was like on the the south facing side of Flamingo. That's right. Back from Decatur. That's right. God damn it. In between a pawn shop and another pawn shop. Like there's like yeah. pawn shops on both sides. Yeah. yeah. I cannot remember the name of it. Dave, where are we talking about? I it's called Money Plays. That's right. Money That's plays. Right. Money plays. I saw it so that place was around forever, forever, man. Forever for a long time. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I was really bummed when that closed. It's, yeah, it's really sad that that place didn't make it. Dave, yeah. Dave, what do we have up next? All right. Next up, we have a legit proper music venue with a stage, dance floor, even dedicated mosh pit area. The space was a bit of a drive from Maryland Parkway to the chilly northern environs of Rancho and Cheyenne. This spot actually looked like it was going to break the trend of venues unceremoniously going out of business until it recently unceremoniously went out of business. Uh, you have 2010 written down here, but I feel like it was later than that. Was Q. it really? But, oh, uh, okay. My, I, I'm sorry. My sourcing, that might be apocryphal. My sourcing was 2010. Yeah. I was already gone. It changed names. Yeah. I changed names. So maybe it changed names at the time, but didn't close entirely. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. You're talking about the Cheyenne Saloon. That's, that's right. right. Of course. Boom. Absolutely. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. It had later. It it became something else, and they were playing a lot. They had a lot of metal bands playing there. Yeah, uh, definitely. But I had played there back in the day, and they would just put on shows. It'd be like, it'd be like a you'd be like a ska band, a punk band, and then like a grunge, but like all back to back. It was yeah. It was that kind of place. I could I could be and wrong. Very late. Hugh. Very late. Mm-hmm. Very. Late. I think the last Polar Bear MC show. That was our there. last. Like show. as a full oh, group. Oh, as a full group. Yeah. That was right. our last yeah. show as a full group. After that, we started okay. the process of attrition, like various All my members. All side projects. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, now we're getting to the good stuff, PJ. We are in a strip mall on okay. the corner of Decatur and Lake Mead. That's probably, for, for you, that's probably enough. Uh, today, all that remains of this historic Vegas off-strip music venue is an off-brand Mexican restaurant that actually looks pretty good um, based on the photos I saw online. When this venue closed in 2007 after, after hosting numerous Polar Bear MC live shows, I should add, uh, the Las Vegas Weekly's Aaron Thompson described it as such. Besides, quote, besides tales of drunken mayhem involving food fights, baby powder, midgets, onstage dumpster diving, strange fistfights between bands, and violent and bloody black metal shows over the course of the bar's nearly 26 years, this venue also represented a place where Vegas's once vibrant punk past was still encouraged to grow, regardless of the era. PJ, I think you know, but where are we? I know the venue. <laughs> this is another This is another uh, spot where my, um, my memory is terrible, <laughs> and it's right on the tip of my tongue. It was a really cool place. It was very cool. It was a very I, cool place. A very I cool know. place. I know. PJ. I'm, I'm, PJ, I'm, I'm telling to remember you. remember what the lap. PJ, I'm telling you. It was a very cool place. 
It was oh really god, the cooler really lounge. Cool. Yeah, sorry. There you go. The cooler lounge. <laughs> Thank you. I was trying to think of what the last the last thing I saw there, the last what I what I went there for. I feel like I was there for a battle of the bands. Mm-hmm. And I might have actually been judging it. Because I always right. got you know, when you're a when you're a you know, a journalist, you always get invited to do that kind of stuff. Yeah, they broke you in. Aaron Thompson was one of my like proteges. Oh, nice. Uh <laughs> we had to bring him in. I, that. that was that I was some that. that was some good um, pros that he had in 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 the on that day that the Cooler Lounge, which was a place yeah. that we played he's, at a he's, lot. He's he's a great writer, man. Yeah, he's yeah, good for sure. Um, so yeah, I think we have Speaking two more. Of Dave. Battle of the bands. Yeah. Speaking let's, of battle, let's of go the to bands. the next one. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, so if you lived in Las Vegas in the '90s and 2000s and didn't feast on the nightly bounty of horny tourists that populated this cliche-ridden but nonetheless delightful hybrid club venue on Paradise and Convention Center. Brother or sister, what the hell were you doing? This is also a place where we won a battle of the bands as the Polar Bear. You didn't even have to... (laughs) And then it went out of business, of course, shortly after. You, You didn't have to say the location. Yeah. (laughs) Just horny tourists was enough. It's the beach. That's right. It's the beach. Absolutely. I will never forget. We have a, we still have a great photo of, I I don't know if you remember, I'm sure you do remember the huge LED sign that they had outside that they could um, program with, with, with visuals. And we have like, you know, 50 foot tall picture of polar bear MCs up there shining over the, uh, over paradise and it was um, that we t- that we took in rock and roll billy's garage that's right yeah <laughs> i i didn't know that 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 you were the polar bear mcs <laughs> i'm sorry you're, like you're I knew, wishing like you didn't I knew the do name. this interview i had no idea that that was you guys i apologize, <laughs> I apologize. I, whenever people yeah. know, have heard of that band i just assume that i should be apologizing and i always do yeah we, we try to hide that fact about ourselves yeah. but it's it's it is what it is so <laughs> so this is our last entry and I think that you're going to nail this one. Okay. This is this is one that is like right up your alley. Um, so here we go to our final entry. The granddaddy of them all, at least as far as the Las Vegas local music scene went back during our era. In the mythology of our time in Las Vegas, this was the spot. This was where every band dreamed of playing. It wasn't the biggest. It wasn't. The, it was never the nicest. But it was where you wanted to play. Uh, it was as official, established, bona fide, legit, and underground music venues you could find in the city outside of the strip of the hotels or or Maryland Parkway. Its first iteration, the one that most folks remember, was maybe I think on Jones and Desert Inn. This might this is apocryphal as well. This information is not available online. You can't really find it. Uh, <laughs> but it moved where else to Maryland Parkway and Flamingo in 2003, where it enjoyed briefly a second life before going out of business for good shortly after. The Polar Bear MCs won yet another Battle of the Bands there. God damn, Dave. We were fucking... We, we, we suck. We suck. Dick, dude. <laughs> PJ, where are we? The Boston. The Boston. That's right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the Boston Bar and Grill. The Boston Bar. Yeah. yeah. It was so weird when they moved to... It never felt right. Where... It was like a... Where... Was it, was... it in that shopping center on the... On the northeast corner? Yep. The n- northwest. North, northwest. Right? Northwest corner. And it was like behind the shopping center. It was like hidden by the shopping center. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. It was in that, yeah. The place, oh, God, that was it's such a weird location. It was like, and it later became like a, it became a hookah lounge at some point. And I think like, so, It was like yeah. a million different things. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that was weird. The Boston was, man, uh, I spent a lot of time at the Boston 
Um, and my bands played at the Boston. And I feel like when I was writing for The City Life, I feel like I wrote about the Boston every week. Right. There was that always was something like, happening. And it was during, yeah. It was, it was funny because it was the scene that was at the Boston. It was when, you know, rock rap rock was very big and there was a lot of like kind of new metal stuff happening. And that was the scene that like the killers were not welcome at no. in a way <laughs> <Yeah>. because like, <laughs> you know, they were like this like twee faux post-punk band, um, you know, at least in the eyes of like, you know, all of the like, you know, baggy pants chain half rapping, half growling <laughs> bands. Yeah. And... That was so. I don't know. If you, I don't know if, if you guys know this, but like I wrote the first story ever about the Killers back in two thousand two when they were a completely different band, a oh, whole no different shit. lineup. It was, I did yeah, not it was know Brandon that, no. and Dave and the two other guys. And I, I I did a local music column for the City Life where I would write about like an unheard of or up and coming local band. I would do like a main band that would be like the Joint Chiefs. Or like Shit, someone who was like kind Chiefs. of big at the time. <laughs> and then I would do like a little sidebar and the little, I, I, well, no, I think we did do the feature on the killers that time, but like, yeah, it was, I remember them talking about that, that they were just like, you know, we're, we don't fit in with any of these, this other stuff going on, not the Boston scene or whatever. And I'm like, yeah. And then, you know, two years later. Did, did anything stand out? Like, did, did you say like, yeah? I mean, was there any like, uh, I don't know, like that 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 like Grantland Rice moment where you're like, this kid's got it, you know, like or or no? So Brandon and Dave, especially Brandon, right? And Brand, he was young. I don't know if he was even twenty one. I think he might have still been twenty. Uh, right out the gate, they acted like rock stars. Nice. In a way that like no one else was doing at the time, like. You know, they, I mean, you saw it in like their, po their promo photos, like wearing scarves and like, you know, had a very like mod sort of look like they were doing the stuff that was cool in New York at the time, you know, like the strokes and Interpol and stuff like that. But like, it hadn't really hit the West coast yet and it hadn't hit the mainstream yet. Right. And they were ahead of that in Vegas. They right. were deaf. I mean, it's part of the reason why they had to leave town to get anywhere. Right. But Brandon was always like nice, but he was very aloof. Yeah. You know, and like now the makeup of the band, you know, I mean, it's obviously gone through some changes, but like I've known Ronnie Venucci since we were 18 years old, right? Like we were both playing in dumb little bands and stuff and going to, you know, the same shows and whatever. And then Mark, you know, coming out of uh, Expert on October uh, with Ronnie and, a, you know, another band, like they were all part of the scene. So they were very chill and down to earth. But like Brandon was always sort of like a whole nother he was yeah. on another level like you know it was where everyone else was just like we were all bros hanging out these guys were kind of purposely i think a little bit set apart and i think that's eventually you see that in their sort of ascendance you that's know? interesting that's yeah. interesting yeah because because for, for like in, in in that little insular world of the of the, the scene the quote-unquote scene in that time we didn't know about them like i mean like they weren't it wasn't like, I don't know, Dave, who was like somebody that like Vandalay Industries or something, bands that did a good, they weren't very great. They weren't good at all, but like really, but they were great at kind of, I don't know, like, like we were good at clockwise. Yeah. Like yeah. we, we were great. Clockwise was Rebel huge Yell. at the time. We, like yeah. our band and a lot of the bands that we knew were great at, 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 at defrauding 
UNLV of copy privileges. So like we would make a million wheat paste flyers and we would, you know, because we would be like dating a swimmer or something. And like, if that sounds very specific, it's because it is. And, uh, and, and like, okay. So like you'd see a million polar bear MCs full flyers all over Maryland Parkway. And it, with the killers, it was so funny because a couple years later, they're the biggest band in the world. And people are like, Oh, they're from Vegas. And we're like, really from, from Vegas. Oh, okay. You know, we, we, it was it was very strange the way they but it sounds like they had their own plan or their own trajectory that they were going after and they weren't really engaging in that local scene so much it was more like a they were hunting bigger game I don't know that that's kind of what it sounds like but I think that's interesting kind of yeah I mean and they were they were playing at like places like uh uh was it oh, I forget what the there was there was a bar over in the Fruit Loop that was mostly a tranny bar was uh, it Free yeah, Zone. Free zone. Huh? Was it free zone? Um, zone? I don't know. Maybe it was free zone. I don't know. It was one of those play, but they like, they would play there and like, they would do their own thing where they could be more like dramatic and sort of like put on like a show that was different. But yeah, I mean, they, it was funny. Like I remember when Ronnie joined the band, I saw him at Cafe Special Roma. So he was still uh, going to UNLV for his like master in percussion or whatever. And I was like, Hey, I heard you joined the band. He's like, yeah. And then I hadn't seen them for a year after that. And no one heard anything from them for a year. Yeah. And the next thing we know, you know, they're doing a, um, a, a, a like a showcase show and they're getting signed to Island or whatever. And it was like, they, I mean, they literally just like dropped off the, you know, I mean, but that's a weird Vegas thing too. Like Panic at the Disco, these kids played one show. They yeah, had played right. one live show and then they've got, you know, the the record deal through Fuel by Ramen, and the next thing you know, they're they're on tour. Right. And I talk, I mean, I talk to those guys, you know, Brandon and all those guys. Like, there's a lot of Brandons in the a lot of Brandons, music. yeah. Um, <laughs> or I guess That's he's Brandon, Brandon Yuri. Yeah. Um, he, uh, I would talk to them when they were on the road, and you know, they like the first time I talked to them on the road, they were just in a, you know, crappy little van. And then the next time I talked to them on the road, they have an entire fleet of trucks because they have, they're moving their stage, you know, set up like, you know, and that all happened in the span of a year. Right. It's, it's just interesting how that sort of happened. The last thing I was going to talk to you about, because I think that you won our game. You, you got the majority. We did stump you a couple of times, but uh, yeah, you, yeah, you clearly know your shit. So you, um, you stumped me clearly on one and then my faulty memory screwed me on the rest. Yeah. Um, the only other thing I was going to bring up and actually throw it to Dave, do you remember this moment as we talk about like the way that things might, I don't know, ever recover? And I guess it's like kind of careful for the false starts or the false trends or whatever. There was a moment in Vegas where it seemed like the coffee shops were going to be replaced by like smoothie and yogurt places. And do you guys remember this weird <laughs> moment where there'd be like, we played two smoothie shows. We played two shows at two different smoothie places. I, yeah, what the fuck? Yeah. What the fuck was going on there? I, I, like, I feel like that was a uniquely Vegas thing where it was like, you know, what are the next venues? Fucking yogurt shops. And it was, <laughs> do you by the way, that, that one show that we did at, I think it was called Smoothie King. Fucking one of our biggest shows. Oh, like we, we were it was playing like a to a thousand sea people, of people showed up to see us. It was insane. <laughs> but you know Fucking what? Weird. Like it's it was it. You know what? It's funny, but that, that I I don't think it was just smoothie shops. It was like I remember playing a pizza joint in like the sort of like late aughts, and then they were doing these shows that there was this like 
Remember the hot dog place? kind of place that was on um, Eastern at the 215 next to this movie theater. I forget what it was called, but like they were doing a bunch of shows at this place that was just basically kind of like a, a counter service diner. Like I feel like what had happened was all of the venues shriveled up, yeah. especially all ages. This was the thing. All ages venues all ages never in Vegas were a thing. Yeah. But like, and you should, I mean, Yayo yeah, Taco on Maryland Parkway became the place to go for shows. It was a taco shop yeah but you know that was where you went to go see punk shows and metal shows and they would do like you know all sorts of different stuff we walked You're into so it. right we, yeah. we played we played at a place called doggy style hot dogs that was right underneath espresso roma where right. espresso, espresso roma used yeah. to be yeah 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 we played there <laughs> and then we played at the we played at that smoothie shop that cleared out the entire park parking lot in maryland parkway and like or, i'm sorry not maryland parkway in summerlin way out off yeah of that like, was in summerlin I don't know, Tonopah or whatever, or not, or Tanaya or whatever. And a thousand teenagers showed up. A thousand, like, 14, 15 year old kids showed up to watch these Inc- dudes. Including in their 20s. Echo, who might be the next uh, big thing out of Las Vegas, it looks like. Yeah. 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 He, used to, he loved us back in the day. <laughs> so, yeah, you're right. And that, that goes back to your point about the energy just kind of dispersing into, like, every, no, all the venues closed. So every random ass place just became a semi venue. Like, it just was like, oh, well, we've got. 20 square feet of unused uh, tables. Let's just put a stage there instead. Or not even a stage. Let's just ask people to just stand there and perform. And uh, yeah, that's that's the, the... I call that the Hank's Place rule, Dave. You remember Hank's Place? Yeah. Oh yeah, that was a good spot. <laughs> so the movie is Parkway of Broken Dreams. It's a special one to us here at Bird Road. Uh, we had a blast talking with its director, PJ Perez. Um and uh, you can visit parkwayofbrokendreams.com. Stay up to date for when you'll be able to actually, you know, see the show, your, the, the show yourself. Keep an eye out. Follow them on social. Follow PJ on socials for, uh, you know, any any future showings that might be coming down the road. And uh, go down to Maryland Parkway, man. Just try to, like, uh, you know, just soak in the ambient vibes of the 90s and, uh, and, and try to enjoy it. PJ, thanks for, uh, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, guys. This was really fun. 